I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is with Barry Sorluga from the Washington Post. Barry writes about uh, baseball a lot. He covers uh, the Washington Nationals as well as, uh, you know, just general baseball topics for the Washington Post. He also covers golf for the Washington Post. So he, he was at the Masters. Uh, he goes to the major championships. You see Barry, Barry out on the golf beat as well. Um, it you know, I've been wanting to do this pod for a few weeks now with uh, the new rules with Major League Baseball. Uh, Major League Baseball obviously has undergone a pretty substantial change in the rules of the game uh, for this year. The intentions of them really were to modernize the game, speed up the game, make the game more appealing to a younger audience, and they've instituted things such as a, a pitch clock bigger bases. Um, and really, you know, this is a, a seismic change for a sport that has held longstanding traditions, history. Um, you know, it might sound familiar to another sport we talk about a lot on this podcast, golf. Obviously, pace of play has come to a head in recent weeks. Um, you know, I think slightly unfairly, I think Patrick Cantley has become the poster boy for this. There are a lot of slow golfers. Patrick Cantley obviously is, is in contention a lot. He's one of the best players in the world, so it kind of comes to light. But let's not act like there isn't a hundred slow players um, on the PGA Tour. Uh, Patrick Cantley is one of those. It does not excuse him, but it also, you know, I think one of the one of the big issues in golf is that the governing bodies of the sport, the PGA Tour, the USGA, the RNA, don't do anything to really penalize slow play we've had two instances really in the last 10 years of slow play being penalized one of them was Hideki Matsuyama in the open championship when he was 18 years old uh at Muirfield so if it's not being monitored what Patrick Cantlay is doing is using the rules to the best of his advantage to play the best possible golf now the bigger question it shouldn't be let's crucify Patrick Cantlay and make him an example, it should be more discussing, hey, what are the rules of the game? What's important to the game of golf is the ability to make decisions under the gun and read putts quickly a, a big part of golf? Like, is that a an important part of the sport? I think it is. Others might disagree. But if you think about the product of golf, where it's going, what you want golf to be in the next hundred years is pace of play important to the product of golf. I don't think you can make an argument that says it isn't. You know, these rounds where we were approaching five hours with twosomes in golf on weekends, that's not good for the sport. That's it makes it hard to televise. There's all these other trickle down effects. So the point of this conversation with Barry, and I 
it, you know, I think, you know, I don't like to say, I think it turned out better than I anticipated. I was, uh, I was hopeful that this, this would be a pod that really translated and, and that Barry would kind of understand where I'm, I was going with it. And he, he really did, um, and provided a lot of expertise on what baseball and, and is doing and how it relates back to golf. Um, you know, I think that this is the type of things that the sport of golf needs to be looking at. It is a bit unique with the way it's structured, but if you look at every major league uh, sport, whether it's baseball, hockey, football, basketball, they are constantly testing and looking at ways that they can improve their game, improve their product on television, because they understand in order to stay relevant, in order to stay popular across generations, you need to make modifications, evolutions to the game that appeal to the next generation. Baseball has done this. One of the things that they looked at was pace of their games, and they have done it masterfully with this pitch clock. They're a month into it, and really, it's been phenomenal for the sport. So, Without further ado, we are going to get into this topic, but you know, I think these are there are a lot of things in here, a lot of things in other sports that they are doing that golf really should look at in terms of modernizing the game and making the professional game more appealing to a wider range of uh, of people. All right, Barry, thanks for coming on. Um, this is going to be a little bit different podcast than than our normal uh, topic. We're going to talk we're going to talk a lot about baseball, but I promise everybody there's going to be a tie back to golf uh, here. There is a method to the madness. Um, <laughs> Barry, you cover both baseball and golf. Um, I'm curious just off the off the top. You know, what what's your favorite aspect about covering each sport? Like, is there something that you you know, when you're at the Masters that you sets in that you're like, oh, I love covering golf. And and when when baseball season kicks up, like, what are you most excited about? You know, I mean, there's an old saying about sports writing that the the smaller the ball, the better the writing. Um, and so the two smallest balls are, are baseball and golf. I don't know if that's literally true, but um, there's certainly if you go through the litany of legendary sports writers, like there's the. Herbert Warren wins and the, you know, Peter Gammons and they're, they're kind of our baseball and, and golf writers. Um, you don't think as much of the, you know, literary flair around football necessarily. So, I mean, from a, from a professional, like aspiring to write well person, um, those two sports for whatever reason lend themselves to, to good storylines and good storytelling. Um, and I do like them both. And I like, I think I like them both differently. Um, I love the flow of a golf tournament of a major week and you know, kind of what to expect on Tuesdays and all the anticipation and, and getting into um, the actual competition. Um, and then, you know, yesterday, for instance, I went up to Camden Yards and uh, it's a sunny Wednesday afternoon for a 1 PM start uh, between the Red Sox and the Orioles. And, um, it feels like the whole summer is stretched out before you. You see a nice, clean baseball game. Um, I love them both kind of, I would say, similarly and, and differently. There's a different flow, um, but they also involve a lot of super insightful characters and, and storytellers. So I, I love them both. I, I imagine baseball 
like the dog days of you know the famous baseball the dog days like in of august is that really like the dog days of being a sports writer and being at like game 120 or whatever it is on the calendar and just you know if your team's not if you if you got a bad team you're covering it's got to be just a, just an absolute grind to write every day for sure for sure and and that's you know back when i was the beat writer i covered the washington nationals for their first um three and a half seasons you know of their existence like yeah you'd get to you know you're on a 100 loss pace and um you get to august and you know it's the eighth day of an 11 day road trip. And, um, it's not, it's not easy. Um, I used to try to, you know, walking into the park say, okay, what's important and what's interesting about this team on this day and try to gear myself up for, um, you know, not making it game 120 out of 162 in kind of a silo, but making it, um, a chapter that tells that 162 game game story. And, and when you find those, those threads that hold the season together, it makes it more interesting, but you do, I'm not going to say you, in those days for the beat writers that it's not a slog. It, it can, it, you can love the game and it can be a slog in, in late August when you can't quite see the finish line yet. Um, you know, there's, there's still quite a bit to go for a season that might be going nowhere. That that's good advice. That's that's great advice. I might take it to heart this week with the Mexico Open with one one player in the top ten. Me wondering what are we doing having this event? Right. You know, it's just a chapter. It's a chapter in the season long book. You know, we we need uh we need William McGirt in the field for that for that chapter. It, it makes it more interesting. Um. So to get into what I wanted to talk about uh here today, um, I I you know baseball has gone through some. I think, I think pretty major rules changes um, for the year. There are a few changes. They aren't, you know, the, obviously everybody's talking about the pitch clock. So the pitch clock is, is the big change. There's now a timer uh, that between pitches players, you know, you have X amount of times the pitcher can throw the ball and any time the batter's got to be ready in that time frame. Um, obviously that, that was untimed before it could be however long you really wanted to throw a pitch. Uh, you have bigger bases and the shift has been eliminated. So I got, those are the three big ones, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what I'd love to hear about a little bit is like from your uh, view, what were the prevalent trends in the game before these changes? And, you know, kind of where, what was like, if you could zoom out a little, what was, what was happening to baseball the last five to 10 years? So, in addition to games getting longer, just in terms of enduring what last year was a three hour and and four minute game, um, there's been a real imbalance in baseball over the last decade. Um, Teams have fetishized velocity from pitchers um, and really sought to, to develop it over all other qualities. And that's really led to a few things. Um, what was, you know, when we were growing up, what were the big narratives about a baseball game? Who's pitching that night? That was, that was kind of um, defined uh, what the matchup was going to be. Was it going to be two aces against each other? Was it a lopsided matchup? Um, and the job of those pitchers in the, in the 70s and the 80s was to 
finish the game and and shake the catcher's hand at, at the end. And what the the job of the starting pitcher has become is to throw as hard as you can for as long as you can, and we'll come get you in the fourth, fifth, maybe sixth inning. Um, and we're going to hand the ball over to a series of dudes that throw 98 and have ridiculous sliders, and they're going to go all out. And the only way the the offense could counter was to swing, you know, there were no controlled swings. We're, we're swinging up, we're swinging for launch angle, we're swinging to, to hit the ball out of the park. So what happened was you had strikeouts going up every year since 2005, new record every single year, um, but also homers starting to, to go up and no action. Like a, I always say, like, what what's more interesting in baseball? a solo home run where you watch the ball go out and the guy jogs around or, or somebody, you know, a runner on first and a ball into the right field corner. And now you have to look at the right fielder and the cutoff man. And and then the third base coach and is the runner going to, is, you know, there's five or six things that are going on over a longer period of period of time in that play where the home run is, is, is boring. Um, So that's a long winded way of saying that all of those things had the game out of whack. And then it was taking, longer too long and those you know four hour postseason games that no 10 year old kid on the east coast could see the end of was you know really threatening to to kill the game so change was needed change was necessary they made some really fundamental changes and it's already having a big impact yeah i think people would push back obviously immediately on the homer being less interesting but when when you think about it like what makes a homer special is when they're scarce when, Absolutely. you know, they aren't the prevalent way people score runs, right? Like, it's, I think it's really similar, and I don't want to get too into the comparisons of golf, but with a long drive, right? Everybody says, like, oh, they're, they're super long drives. But if everybody hits the long drive, what is a long drive, right? I remember right. growing up, obviously, I grew up in, in a bridge era. Um, in the 90, I mean, I remember early nineties baseball and then I was a Cubs, I grew up a Cubs fan. So I had the Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, uh, steroid fest. I think that's okay to say on a golf podcast (laughs) where everybody's launching homers, but it was still like, you know, you saw like the metamorphosis of, uh, of, uh, you talked about the Orioles game of a Brady Anderson going from a nine home run guy to to a 50 50 home run guy. guy. Yeah. Yeah, When, when, when all of a sudden everybody's hitting 30 to 50 homers, it's not a, a, a crazy phenomenon. It's a, it's almost like a, a diminishing return, right? Is the home run when there's a couple you know, when there might be one a game, it's really an amazing spectacle, that home run. But the um, the idea of manufacturing runs and the tension that comes with having to really work for runs, I think is I think that's what people fall in love with every playoff in the playoffs where I feel like runs become a little bit more scarce than in the regular season. I don't know if that this is just somebody that no, casually right. watches baseball. Um, but runs get a little bit more scarce. And that's kind of what the lure of baseball is, is when you have to, you know, um, generate the runs rather than just, you know, they just appear. Yeah. And I mean, I'll just use that game that I went to yesterday. Um, the Orioles won six to two over the Red Sox. The Red Sox had one of their runs on a, um, a solo homer. 
but the Orioles, um, they had two sacrifice bunts to move guys to from first and second to second and third. They, the, I'm not going to argue that the sacrifice fly is a particularly interesting play, but it, <laughs> at least if there's going to be a play at the plate, like there's some tension there. The guy's setting up. You, you've got places to turn your head and, and different, you know, again, the third base coach, is he going to send him? What's the, what's the timing here? Um, so the Orioles win a game six to two in which, you know, they had 12 hits. That's action. Each one of those hits is, a, you know, I, I think there's more tension and I'm, I don't want to sound like some sort of home run fascist, but like <laughs> there's more tension in um, a single to write with a guy on first. And you're evaluating, okay, is this guy going to go for third? Is there going to be a play at third? There's just, there's more action. And then you take what, what we're really here to talk about is, is the, the pitch clock, meaning that the next play comes more quickly. Um, there's just more reason to be engaged all the time. You, you don't lose track of how many outs are there, or how, uh, you know, what's the count. Um, you're, you're more locked in because you have to be, you're, you're going to miss stuff. You know, a, a great way to synthesize this would be if, uh, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about going back to my youth when I try when I keep score, you know, manually keep score, and how simple solo home runs are versus when you have a guy on first, you have sacrifice, like all the little intricacies of of keeping that perfect scorecard, you know, it, you know, when that happens, and you know that it, it's it's funny because like you think about like. Uh, a guy going to third, like you signifying all of that on while you're keeping score would be like a perfect way to visualize what you're talking about, like the interest in the game. So I'm going to grab from my trash uh, the um, score, my scorecard from yesterday. OK, wait, this might be the video video cutout, right? I don't here. know if this. Yeah. So but anyway, you're you're totally right. Like you probably can't see this, but um that's this is the Orioles side of the board and all this stuff where the runs are scored and there's a sack here and I keep track of which um, which hit place in the lineup moves the guys over and how did he you know that to me tells a more interesting story than than if we go to the Red Sox like here's the the solo homer is like okay yeah let us let off the um, inning with the solo homer it's just like a block like um, we may be getting too deep in the in the weeds but um, I'm sure there are nerds who listen to this podcast and and there's nothing nerdier than than doing that and believing that it it tells a story about the game. Well, I think that you could say the same thing with with golf, right? It's you know, when you have to hit more shots, that's just like what we're talking about here. And I didn't mean to get into the comparisons directly, but like, you know, when when players are forced to hit more shots, just like there when there are more possible outcomes in in baseball, you could bunt you could try and hit and run. You could try and, you know, you, you want to hit it to, to, to the left side of the infield, you know, or the right side of the infield to move the right side of the infield, move the guy from second to third. Like, you know, when you have these, these more varied outcomes in golf, it's okay. Should I lay up on a par five? Like what we saw with, with the changes that Augusta national has made, for example, where, it's not a foregone conclusion if I hit the fairway that I am going for the green in two. Like the idea that there was even a thought in players' heads, even though they all ended up going for it again. But like, even though there was a thought, there was discourse before the week, it made it more interesting because all of a sudden when they're, they hit the fairway, there's the tension of the walk to the ball. Are they going to go for it? 
Yeah, and I think I, I was absolutely thinking about the team moved back at 13 at Augusta when you were talking about that, because like it wasn't even just that there wasn't a thought that they were going to go for it before. It was like they were going to go for it with an eight iron, right? Like it's just it's pitch and putt to some. Now, is there an excitement in somebody rolling in an eagle putt uh, at number 13 on Augusta on a Sunday? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not going to deny that. But like it matters that they're standing over, you know, in some cases a four iron over that creek and into, you know, a green that suddenly is not as receptive because the launch, you know, the angle it's coming in at is, is different. Like you want variety. And if you, if you put the home run with the long drive and the long drive leading to just, you know, having a wedge in and spinning it back, that's not as interesting as um, I think for, for nerds around the sport. And I would equate this with baseball too. Like, all the stuff that I was talking about earlier, the stuff that's actually action that's not involved in a home run, it's very, very similar to, okay, I just hit a 334-yard drive and now I have a, a wedge in and um, that's an easy birdie. And I think the thing about it is it, just like homers, right? Homers, like what we're talking about, homers are are more interesting when they're a little bit more of a feat, right? An eagle on a par five is way, way more compelling way more exciting when it is more of a feat when there's less eagles avail like scored on a hole that eagle is more exciting and interesting just the same same way a birdie on a on a tough par par four or par three is is more interesting than a you know a birdie on a par three that's giving away like you know free candy right those birdies those become more significant more relevant so back to the baseball stuff um you know before these changes uh were made what were the complaints that kind of were bubbling within within the game before anything was done so i think um you know if you go to the velocity and the imbalance between the pitcher and and the hitter that that people couldn't really identify that necessarily but the the root of all evil here was velocity but that built a a longer game, and worse than a, the lo- length of the game was the amount of inaction in the in the middle of the game when a pitcher could take as much time as he wanted to take deep breaths, to walk off the back of the mound, to get the rosin band bag and and um, dry his hand. Um, he's gathering strength again to throw another ninety nine mile an hour fastball. To a hitter who might say, you know what, I actually am not feeling it right now. I'm going to step out. Um, so what they've done with this pitch clock, which is 15 seconds um, between pitches in a, in a normal scenario, is th- the brilliant part about it is they have eliminated nothing that you wanted to see in the first place. They have only cut fat from the game. And it's visceral. You can feel it. When you're watching a game on TV or you're at a game, the the ball is going back to the pitcher and he's reporting to the rubber and he's getting himself set. And the hitter has to be in there at seven seconds on the clock or it's a violation against him. And they're doing it uh, again. And the result, I mean, I asked Major League Baseball to send me this morning um, the updated numbers through yesterday. Um, through 28 uh, days of the season last year, games were three hours and five minutes long on, on average. They settled at three hours and four minutes over the course of the entire season. Through 28 uh, days of this season, 
they're two hours and 36 minutes long. That is 28 minutes a a game shorter, essentially a half an hour on average shorter. Take that over the course of a season, and that's 80 hours of only fat that you have cut out of baseball. And and you may have East Coast kids who um, can turn on their team at 7 and watch them until 9.30 and still get to bed at an hour when they're not bleary-eyed in the morning. It's just, it's a fundamental, fundamental change to not just the the length of the game, but the pace of the game. Yeah, I, I think that it's it's um it's so important, right? Obviously, like it is like you said, things that nobody wanted to watch. Right? It was like you could was, maybe make an argument that the time builds tension. That could be one thing you could make an argument, but like is it noticeably different between 15 seconds and a minute or two minutes? Yeah. You well, I mean, you talk about building the tension. Like I, I remember, and this was years ago, I, I would say it was 2006 or 2007. Um, I was primarily a baseball, I was a baseball reporter and in the postseason, um, you know, these games were uh, the Red Sox were taught to like take as many pitches as you can, follow them back, like have these incredibly long at bats. And I remember doing a story on that at that time and talking to a television producer, uh, you know, who produced the games for Fox or ESPN or whoever it was at the time saying, we have to have this whole dance where, um, okay, we're, here's the pitcher, here's the hitter. Now it's the manager. Here's a nervous fan. Um, now we're back to the pitcher and you're, what do you do? You know, yes, there's drama in doing that, but there's no action. And if you repeat that kind of scenario, you know, a hundred times a night, that's just, that's rough. And that is, a, it's not, it's not action. And I think if you, you know, with golf, the good thing about a golf telecast is you can move away from it. There's 144 players or 156 players or, or whatever, um, obviously not all out there at the same time, but half that out there at roughly the same time, you've got choices and you don't have to cut out uh, or you don't have to just sit there and watch the waiting. But there's no question that it impacts the play, the experience of anybody on site watching it. Um, when you're when you're walking around for a, a five hour round where you're watching Patrick Cantlay, you know, or just waiting, just pick a name, waiting for the name first Cantlay. Yeah, right. No, it, it matters. It totally matters. Well, I, I think like the thing with golf telecast that I noticed is that the problem, you know, and this is where the pitch clock's brilliant, right? And like um, the problem with the with the golf telecast is that they have they go to pre-shot routine and they have no clue when that pre-shot routine is going to be over. Right. So you might be with a player for you see it sometimes where they're on a player. They cut away from the player and come back to the player. Sometimes they stay on the player and it's like we're we're watching this for 90 seconds. If all of a sudden they had a finite amount of time, you know, and I know that we can talk about implementation. I, I, I want to talk about this a little bit later, but if they have a fi- finite amount of time, all of a sudden it cures one of like golf fans who watch on TV's biggest issues with the sport. Show more shots. Right. If you know when players are hitting and where it is in the, in the shot clock, all of a sudden you can go to them. Like you, you have like, you have markers. It makes covering the sport uh, from a telecast standpoint, 
way easier as I imagine baseball, like baseball does different shots, you know, announcers, like one of the things I, I admire so much. And I think golf needs more of the baseball announcer. Like, you know, I, I'll never forget like Pat Hughes on the radio telecast in, in, in Chicago talking about like where baseballs were made like in the dead time, like and it's spanning like two innings. I'm talking about the process of making a baseball. Like, I don't know why that memory sticks in my head for 15 minutes, but like now I imagine the sports probably a lot easier to telecast. Like the announcers have to be like way more locked in. Yeah. And, and I do think you're right about the golf telecast. Like you know, those producers are super, super talented. And I think like, I, for the most part, I really enjoy um, golf telecasts, even though I agree with you that, you know, that the main complaint is show more shots. Um, but if you, if you have a hard clock on, on a guy and you don't have to make, if you're a producer, you don't have to make that choice of, Oh my God, when is this guy going to pull the trigger? Yes. You know, when the trigger is going to be pulled, you've got your screens up here and you know, what's going on elsewhere you it's a lot I, I i've never been in that role i have to imagine it would be a lot easier to plan and have the end result be over the course of x hours we've seen why more golf shots like that that would be very very meaningful um to the to the television product for sure Now for a quick break from our sponsor, Club Champion. Club Champion is just, is they're the best. Uh, it is the best way to go get fit for golf clubs. They have the widest selection of golf manufacturers. They have every major golf brand. So what you get to do, you know, I used this analogy the other day. If you're going to buy a car, you're test driving a bunch of cars. So with Club Champion, what I love about it is you get to go test drive a bunch of different shafts, a bunch of different club heads, um, and you get to find what's best for you. I've been going to them forever, really from you know the beginning of uh, my golf life. I've been using Club Champion. Like I started using uh, them when I was in high school. Uh, that was right when they were starting their business out of uh, you know a small little shop in in Chicago. And uh, I love the I love their brand and what they do. I love the idea of trying a bunch of clubs and figuring out what's best for you. To me, that makes the most sense. Go into it. You know, you can have your preferences on on what manufacturer you might like, um, but I think that at the end of the day, you know what you want to do and what everybody's trying to do is get the best performance out of the game. As as many listeners probably know, I've been uh, you know I've been playing kind of a uh, a retro set uh for the last year but the big news and reason one of the reasons is my all my clubs broke big news i scheduled my club champion fitting i'm it's in the books i'm gonna go get some new sticks i can't wait i'm ready to uh having played the 70s blades for a while i'm I'm just ready for some modern forgiveness uh i'm ready if i if i catch it a little off the toe for it not to be automatically 10 yards short um so looking forward to that and uh and can't wait. So if if you're looking for um, some new clubs, some increased performance, Club Champions your spot. To schedule a fitting, they're doing 50% off 
the fitting with the purchase of a club. So you're getting 50% off your fitting with the purchase of a club if you use the promo code fried egg. Uh, so use the promo code fried egg when you schedule your fitting and you'll get 50% off a club fitting with a club purchase. So go to club champion, check it out. And, uh, thank you for, to them for, uh, partnering with us and supporting, uh, the podcast now back to Barry. So, you know, as we, we've gotten into the weeds, we, you know, this, this isn't gone as, as planned, but I kind of want to keep moving this conversation along because we could, we could talk about this for hours, I think. But so to sum up kind of baseball in the state, you know, people had felt like some of the intricacy of the game had been lost. The game had fundamentally changed, you know, in the sense of what skills were recorded, rewarded and um, thrived. and Maybe not everybody agreed for the better. I imagine that there were some that said the game is better and and healthier, and I want to get into the, some of that. Um, and the games were getting longer and longer. It was taking longer to play than ever really before. Would you say that sums up kind of the the main thesis of of what was going on in baseball? Yeah, I mean, if you want to distill it down to to maybe one sentence or one catchphrase, it was a lot more time for a lot less action. So, um, I mean, take, I, we can, if you want to get really into the weeds, like batting average is not a really good way to evaluate a, a, an individual player, but league batting average is, you know, what does an average major league hitter hit is a way to tell how much action there is uh, in the game. And that had dipped down um, last year to, I'm going to get the number not exactly right, but to around 240. Like in, in, when I was growing up in the eighties, a two forty hitter was like, you better be a really good defender to stay in the, in the lineup. Um, Cause you're not doing your pulling your weight offensively when that's the average hitter across the league that tells you that the ball's not in play enough. Um, there's not enough, uh, enough action. And then you couple that with, okay, all that action is spread out over three hours rather than contained to two and a half. That was a, a, a major, major impetus for, for the rule changes. And one of the things you didn't mention in rule changes that is important as well is um, they've limited pickoff attempts for uh, when you're throwing for a pitcher throwing to a base, you can do it twice. The third time uh, it's, it's a balk. If you don't get them that, that along with the larger bases has uh, stolen base attempts up. Um, and when you, when you major league baseball did a survey, I think it was two or three years ago, um, that they didn't widely publicize, but they asked fans, what are your more most exciting, what are the plays you get most excited about? Um, stolen base attempts was up there. Great defensive plays was up there. The triple was up there. I'm probably forgetting something, but it was not, it was not the home run. It was these things that involve athleticism, uh, anticipation, um, that kind of uh, excitement. Um They've started to instill, uh, we don't know the full summer play out of like, is, is batting average going to rise over the course of the summer? Um, it hasn't changed. You know, guys still throw 100 and they still use a lot of relievers, uh, all that kind of stuff. But they've they've started to get at least the running game going again. Um, and that matters. It totally matters in, in your enjoyment of a specific play, a specific inning, a specific game. Yeah, I think the same would be said with golf, with with everybody, you know, what's the most exciting shot in golf? What are the most memorable shots in golf? They're usually chip shots or, or approach shots. You know, 
Yes. There's a cup. There's a handful of drives, and those are like when you drive a green, you know. And you know, if you you know, like, but for the most part, the predominant shot that you think about, like if you remember iconic shots, a lot of them are approach shots or chip shots. Um. So how did how did this the rules changes get started? And like, what was like the kind of undercurrent of this whole this big change that happened this year? And I think to your point about the rules changes, like you're not going to see the the big impact of these rules changes in baseball until you can zoom out from like five or 10 years and see where the game goes, because it takes a while for, you know, strategies and different things to change personnel too. Right. Well, I mean, I think um, it's also, again, probably similar to the discussions going in golf. If you, if you have a slower product in a, you know, being played, to generations that are used to rapid fire in whatever they want, you know, whether it's social media or texting or, or whatever, um, kids are not sitting on the couch being like, okay, I'm going to see one pitch every 90 seconds or whatever. Like that's not compelling in any way. So you're, you're, you're dealing with a sport that has an aging fan base to begin with. You have to find a way to replenish, um, the fans uh, on on the young end and get that demographic and have a future for the sport and have it be something that even resembled the national pastime. I mean, I think it baseball has seeded that uh, spot a long time ago, but it just wasn't sustainable down the path that it was going. And it took smart people at major league baseball and with the the players union to say, we got to do something here. Um, Someone I think we both admire is Theo Epstein, who was a former general manager with the Red Sox and the Cubs. Um, he became a point person for MLB on thinking through these problems uh, and and saying, okay, what what can we do here to restore some of the balance between pitcher and hitter to instill more action into the game so that it's moving at a faster pace and there's more exciting stuff to, to watch? And you come up with a pretty interesting package that they, you know, they were able to test in the in the minors. And I remember hearing the first data points uh, when the pitch clock was used in a couple of minor league um, leagues a, a couple of years ago, where they were saying, oh, the game time is down to 228 here, whatever, I'm picking a number. The game time's down to two and a half hours in this league, it's single A league in California that we tried it. Um, it's just made this huge difference. I was like, that can't possibly be true. Like, it, if if that's true, why aren't we doing it right now? And it's after less than a month of the pitch clock being in the majors. I, I mean, I think it'll be mid-season before the wide percentage of the fan base is saying, isn't saying, what's up with this pitch clock? They're saying, how did we not have a pitch clock for the last 20 years? Yeah, I, I I, mean, you know, I haven't been excited for a baseball season for a while. And part of that's, you know, my Cubs are we, we might be on the up and up, but it's been a rough couple of years. But I mean, like I I was with my, my dad's a huge baseball fan and I was with him on uh, spring break right before, you know, the uh, the season started. And like we were like talking baseball and how like how excited, you know, and it was opening day and I had I turned baseball on. I was like, I couldn't wait to watch baseball, you know, because of this clock. I wanted to see what was going on. And I think like 
the thing that golf and baseball share here is like you talked about the pace, this younger generation pace. Like, what do you do if you know NBA playoffs are on right now? When when a game goes to commercial, what's the, what's your first inclination if you're sitting on the couch? What do you do? You go and get a drink. You go to the bathroom. I don't know. I mean, you, you look you, at your phone. You do you something, look, or you click to something else. Like you, your attention is distracted, right? So it's the same thing with golf. It's like if you have ninety seconds between a pitch or ninety seconds between a shot, you're extremely likely that somebody's not going to watch the shot because they're going to get distracted and do something else, right? And that's the idea: is is giving people a clock to measure against. Like, okay, I know I have to pay attention here. Um, is, is a fascinating, it, it just like, it makes sense. And it, it, like what you said, like you get into it, you get into the minors, what they're doing it. And it's like, why, why haven't we been doing this? Um, what were the main detractors to these rules changes saying? And like, who, who did they represent? Well, I mean, I think, you know, people who romanticize about baseball, and I think that the two most romanticized sports from people within them are golf and, and, and baseball people, they, there are people in my job as sports writers who I think in both of these sports almost see themselves as protectors and promoters of, of the game. No, we, we don't. We've never had a clock in baseball. Baseball's beauty is, in fact, that it is untimed. Um, and you'll be stripping away a fundamental element of, uh, of the game. Now, um, was that over romanticized and, and was it outdated um, because of what has, has happened and the, the way pitchers and hitters were manipulating the fact that they were not timed. Yeah, I would argue absolutely. And and you're not in either of these sports. Are you going to please everybody if you make changes? I mean, it's, there's that debate with the ball in golf as well, right? Like, you know, are we, would, if the ball is reeled back, are we stripping these guys of, you know, these more athletic players of something that they've worked hard to attain? We can, you know, that's a, totally different path that I know you guys talk about a, a lot, but there are in any of it, there are um, people who would say um, it's the sport is going to evolve. We should allow it to evolve naturally, not by putting artificial implements in that say, okay, now we have a structure that we've never had before. And I would, I, I would argue that the one change that they did that I, I think, more people are queasy about than even the pitch clock is the banning of shifts um, because the argument would be there's never been assigned defensive positions by rule other than the pitcher has to stand on um, the rubber and the catcher has to be in the catcher's box. The other seven guys could all stand in left field if they thought that was the most can you conceivably not have a catcher? It would be a bad idea, but you know, like that would be bad, right? But <laughs> but the the point is, I think the thing that people are uneasy about there is no, have the offense. The, part of this evolution should be can't the offense figure out how to beat a three infielders to the right side of second base that that kind of thing. So I, I get that debate, but as a package, this had to happen. Because the sport was killing itself, essentially, by what it had become. Yeah, I mean, baseball's undergone ball deadening, too, right? Yeah. yeah I mean, did, now, my question, this is I didn't plan on asking this question, but do you feel like the, when they deadened the ball, that um, athletic, powerful 
baseball players were uh, had things stripped away from them? No, 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 no. And and in fact, um, you know, you go back to something you said very originally, like homers are more interesting when they're less prevalent, right? Like, so if it took more to hit a homer, then then that's fine. I, the, the other thing about the, um, you know, athleticism, one thing that shifting did uh, was minimize athleticism. Because if, if you've got three guys to the right of second base and there's a hard ground ball over there, you know, Ryan Sandberg doesn't have to dive for it because he's got somebody playing behind him in short right field. You're like, you okay, we've got this covered. There's less exciting defensive plays. I mean, it, again, Theo Epstein, in a conversation I had with him probably a couple of years ago now, um, put it this way. Uh, we have better athletes than we've ever had playing this sport, and we are limiting um, the ways that they can show their athleticism. So, um, you know, the same could be said, uh, I think for, for golf, um, you, you want things to be rare, rare means exciting. What, how did players feel about it? Like what was the, the general discourse with players? Obviously they don't have as, uh, I would say outsized of an influence as, uh, as, golfers do where they they are the owners of the sport and the uh and the players right um there is a little bit different setup but what was the what was the general um feeling of players well i mean there was you know some pushback and some reluctance because it's hard for players um i mean one way that that baseball players are um similar to golfers is in a way they're all they're individual corporations, right? Yes, they're a member of a team and the team's success matters and that's part of their legacy. But in a in a vacuum, in a selfish way, their job over the course of their very finite career is to earn as much as they can. Um, and so part of that is like, what is my routine? What is my routine in leading into a game? And what is my routine in that game? Um, very analogous to, to golf, like, your pre-shot routine is really important to you. My pre-pitch routine, when, before I throw a pitch, is very important to me. If you're fundamentally changing that, um, I might I might be really reluctant. Um, I would give, and I think the league gives players an enormous amount of credit for not complaining left and right. Have there been individual instances where you know how can how can that be? Like I get this penalty, um, you know, a ball for when I was uh, fractionally late on something. Yes. And there will be those going, going forward, but in general, because they had an entire spring to get used to it and spring training in baseball is essentially seven weeks. Um, the buy-in has been tremendous. And, and even guys joke about like, uh, well, you know, it's kind of nice being home at 945 and not 1045 uh, after after a night game. There are they I think they can see that they haven't been so disturbed in their um, pre pitch or pre shot routine uh, that it's fundamentally affecting how they do their jobs. And there are ancillary benefits like they have more time with their kids or whatever. Well, I mean, you're talking 80 hours of like not competing. Yes. Is extraordinarily that's like very relevant. Well, in in terms of like how you're gonna feel, in uh, mentally and the body, like the mental aspect of being on field 
for 30 extra minutes is extreme. Like anybody that's played competitive golf, like you, you feel a difference when you get off the course, when it's a five hour competitive round versus a four and a half hour competitive round like that stuff. And if you do it, you know, four days in a row, just like baseball, just like golf, like if you have four games in a row, two extra hours of that intense focus, like, you know, both of them, I think people would say are not like the most physically grueling sports. Sure. Do you need to be physically tuned to play them? But like, they are not like basketball or tennis where you're just like, holy cow, like, I can't believe the endurance, you know, but they, they, they have a mental aspect of them that those other sports might not carry as much in, in terms of like the, just the anguish in, in, in the amount of focus that's required in short bursts. So I also think that that, um, so there's the totality of what you're talking about, like the extra half hour, adding on to an extra half hour the next night, adding on to an extra half hour in the third game of a series or whatever. But there's also um, the possibility and probability of losing focus in between pitches, like, oh, I'm, oh, it's it's going to be, you know, 75 seconds before this guy, what I'm looking in the stands. I'm like, that's a real thing. Um, you, you see guys have to be more engaged on on every pitch because every pitch is is coming more quickly. I think that there's a and this is probably down a rabbit hole, but there's a sports psychology element um, to all of this that. Um, plays to both golf and and baseball um, where, you know, an individual players in either sports, sports psychologist is saying you you control what you can control and what you can control is your preparation for not only that day, but for each and every event within that day. Um, That, I think it's inarguable, has contributed to slow play on either in either of those sports because I'm the pitcher, I'm in control. I'm not going to do this until I'm ready. I'm a golfer. I'm I'm not going to stand over this ball until I'm very clear in how I'm visualizing this shot. I've sorted out all the variables and and now I'm in control of my sp- my swing. That contributes to longer processes period across the board whatever you're trying to execute. Yeah, I I th- I completely agree with this, and I think that's like one of the failings uh, up until now of baseball and golf is not rewarding the skill of somebody who's able to a process information quickly and able to b get themselves mentally ready to hit a shot or throw a pitch or take an at bat in a short amount of time. That is a talent and a skill and one that should be rewarded because that's a huge differentiator, right? Mentally being that player. I I always use this comparison. I saw KVV, uh, Kevin Van Valkenburg used this as in, in an article he wrote about slow play um, on no laying up.com. But the, the idea of like what made Tom Brady, the greatest quarterback of all time, was his ability to process a defense in a, a split second, be able to read a defense, understand his progressions, and throw the pass faster. You know, there's a, a load of people who had more physical traits, for physical attributes, like every year. Like, what's the big discourse this year with the NFL draft this this week this weekend? Is can Anthony Richardson like is he he has these physical traits, but can he 
go through the progressions? Can he run an offense? Can he handle the nuance? Like when you remove all the time, if you remove the pass rush and the the need to throw the ball and, and go through these progressions quickly, all of a sudden Tom Brady might not have been the greatest quarterback of all time. That is important in sports. That's the same thing with why is LeBron great? Like LeBron, like you watch him at age, what is he, 39 or 38 now? And you watch him like just like they just get into the exact thing they want all the time. And he just hunts and picks apart defenses. It's not quite as prevalent as it used to be, but his ability to just and it's in a 24 second shot clock. That's what makes NBA offense so incredible is the finite amount of time that they have to run the offense. How much different would the NBA look if there was no time, you know? Well, you'd have a four corners offense, which you used to have like, okay, we have an eight point lead with 10 minutes left. Like why, why in the world would we shoot? Like we don't have to. I mean, I, so just to bring it back to golf real quick, like um, competitive decisiveness and decision-making in, in a speci- specified amount of time should be rewarded at the masters this year I, on Sunday, um, walking the final group, uh, Rom and, and Kepka. Um, Brooks hits his drive at eight way left into the, into the trees. I'm almost positive this, this was yeah. mm-hmm. And so, um, I was probably with KVV, uh, standing there on, on the left side of the fairway and he's got this evaluation to make and he's going to have to punch back out, right? It's a birdie hole. This is a, a disastrous thing as Rom is starting to turn the momentum. Um, and I just remember he got in there, he looked at it, he talked to his caddy he went through the thing and I'm, you know, up ahead a little bit, but trying to keep a, uh, an eye in, into the trees. And all of a sudden the ball's coming out. And I was like, oh my goodness. Like he went in there, he evaluated all the information that he needed to evaluate and he made a decision and he, he whacked it out and it was a good, you know, whatever he made par, I think. Um, but it, why, you know, we can, I'm not going to list the players who would have gone in there and spent 10 minutes but it's a longer list that would have gone in there and then spent, you know, 75 seconds. Um, and it, and it moved the game. It, it was, it was, it, I just remember being struck by, wow, no one does things that fast. That, that should be, that should be more the norm than, than the opposite. A couple of years ago, I, you know, when Bryson was being accused of slow play, I went to the U S open and I time, I spent like a Friday timing right. all, every, every player in the group for nine holes. And it was him, JT, Kevin Kisner. And Kevin Kisner was incredible. I mean, like, you know, kind of in the vein of Matt Fitzpatrick, where he was just ready to hit after, you know, if if he was the second player to hit, he was hitting in like 12 seconds. You know, Bryson was always, and he's done a great job of speeding up. I think that, you know, you have to give him props. He has sped up his pace of play from this moment, but he was he was taking one and a half, two minutes to hit a shot every every time. Wow. But what I noticed everybody's slow at the green and that's perhaps where skill is most would be most rewarded of like i can read a green quickly and be confident and and stand over a shot and if you think about where golf like you know what happened with with the masters go back to this and i think this is where it really started to bubble this discourse has bubbled and blown up um to where you know we're getting to a point where i don't think like golf like people are going to stand for this for much longer with how, you know, like something has to happen eventually because, you know, Brooks and Rom are putting 
on on they're getting to the green. I saw like John Rom's caddy was visually upset on the 15th green about Patrick Cantlay and Victor Hovland. And to Cantlay and Hovland's credit, like they were waiting on 15. Yes. You know, this 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 was a this wasn't just a Patrick Cantlay problem. Is he a slow player? Absolutely. But there are probably a hundred slow players on the PGA tour. Um, so anyways, he goes to the green at like, uh, Rom, they're on the 15th green. Those guys are walking to the 16th green. They're on the 16th green and they're still putting on the 15th green. They finished putting. Rom obviously has opened up this lead at this point. Kepka's like, looks just like flabbergasted when he's on the 16th tee. They walk to the 16th tee, not a close walk. It, I mean, it's 40, 50 yards. They get there. Rom goes to the bathroom, comes back. Patrick Cantlay, who's out, still has not hit his putt. Yes. And uh, I mean, it's I, just that can't happen. It can't happen. It can't happen. And if you if you take I mean, I think this debate in golf can be applied at all levels like the we've both played with people who watch whoever else is in the group. Do whatever they're doing with their shot. And then they begin their preparation for their shot. Okay, what's my yard? Like, just stop it. Stop. Get ready. Like, don't. That, that's happening over there. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I love playing with uh, the regular people that I play with, who I know if if they're having a problem, an, an issue, they're they're solving it quickly and not worried about where I am on the left side of the fairway. Like, we're all. You look across. Okay, he's not ready. I'm playing right now. Why can't Why can't that be the flow? of a professional round of golf. And that's from T to green, it just, whatever. Is it hard to read a putt? And like, should they take some time? You don't want to have guys just like um, getting up there and, and doing stuff they're not prepared for. Cause that wouldn't bring out the best performance, but it's, it, it is out of control. And the example that you, you used at 15 and 16 is a good one. I, and you're, and you're just having watched this baseball and uh, play out and covering golf. Um, you know, what would you like to see golf do? What do you, you know, obviously they have the, the distance thing is on the table. It looks like it, it's going to happen at some, you know, events, um, which obviously will relieve pace of play. It, if, if less guys can get home into their less drivable par fours, that will relieve pace of play. But you know, what, what else do you think the baseball should be looking at? That's a really interesting question because I'm, I'm still kind of processing the first month of of pretty unprecedented. I mean, you have to go back to 1968 when they um, they lowered. I'm sorry, 69 after the year of the pitcher in 68, they they made a uniformly lower mound because pitchers had too great an advantage and there there was less action in the game. Um, there's so much to digest with what's happened over, you know, only the first 28 days of, of the season, that what next steps might be um, are a little bit hard to envision. They are trying in an independent league um, something called the du double hook rule, which would incentivize teams to leave their starters in longer. The idea is if you pull your starter before he's completed five innings, you lose the designated hitter and the pitcher has to hit in that, that wow. that's the pitcher spot um so 
That would That's be a kind way, of amazing. It's really interesting way to get back to the thing I was talking about at the very beginning of what's the narrative of any day of baseball is like, okay, who's pitching? If that person's not going to be, you know, there's this whole idea of the Tampa Bay Rays and other teams using openers, essentially starting a pitcher who they know is only going to pitch two innings and, and building a, a, a game plan of guys that are only going to pitch one or one or two innings. That takes away that starting pitcher narrative com- completely. Um, maybe that double hook rule is the next thing that uh, you you stick in there to. Again, you're not trying to do to get to the game to a place that it's never been before. You're actually trying to restore it to how it always was played. I mean, if you Tom Boswell, who uh, had my job at the Washington Post for ever and ever and ever and covered baseball and and golf um, as well. He's retired, but he wrote a column going into this baseball season um, after having watched spring training games saying, essentially, this isn't new. The pitch clock isn't making the game something we, we haven't seen before. It's actually restoring it to the way it was played 40 and 50 years ago, which is refreshing and which I think would be perfect for golf because, you know, Jack Nicholas didn't stand over a shot for um, 90 seconds or, or two minutes. He evaluated, stepped up, and executed it to the best of his ability in that, in that moment. That should be rewarded somehow. Yeah, and I think something that you just hit on is all these, all these leagues, with the exception of golf, I mean, the NBA is constantly experimenting constantly. In, in its like lower-level leagues. You know, they are... And the idea that MLB is now in this era of experimentation, you know, the NFL changes rules regularly. The only the only sport that's just like kind of just, no, we're we're not doing anything. We aren't going to try and evolve at this point, you know, and any any of the only evolution that has been introduced has been met with sharp, you know, detractors, criticism is golf. And I think. When you strip away, I mean, I talked earlier about the protectors of the game in both baseball and, and golf, and I feel like for whatever reason, those those sports have, they have such a reverence for their history, right? Like, um, and baseball, even more than golf, the numbers of their history and anything that could alter what 61 homers by Roger Maris meant um, in 1961 or, or any of those, you know, the career home run mark that you debate, like, is Hank Aaron still the all-time greatest because Bonds was on steroids, blah, blah, blah. Um, Anything that threatens that kind of sanctity of that history is seen as evil. I do think if there's a relationship between the two sports and the problems that that they have um, with an aging audience and an audience that, um, you know, a a younger audience that wants to see more and more um, action is baseball has now stripped away some of that reverence for this is the way that we've always done things. Therefore we will always do them going forward. Golf might want to look over there and say, okay, they had a similar, um, they honored their history and valued their history in a similar way. They've done some pretty radical things and they, that radical stuff involved buy-in from all parties reluctant by in, in some cases, but people that have come around and, and understand it. Couldn't we do the same in the name of saving our sport, not just at the professional level, but in, at the recreational level and, and 
getting more people involved because you know, we all make those evaluations when we're going to go play golf. Am I going to play on a Saturday morning when I know it's going to kill, you know, I'm not going to be home until two or three because this round is going to take five hours. Like that's a real life evaluation that has nothing to do with whether a TV producer is watching Patrick Cantlay stand over a ball for two minutes, like, but they're related. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. It's uh, it, it, I think one of the things like that's interesting about golf is I think the people that hold the most reverence for the history of the game are the ones that want the change the most. That could be true. I mean, it, and you think about it like because you know, whatever, like um, Jack Nicholas and, and Gary Player and Arnold Palmer when he was alive and now Tom Watson, they, they do the honorary shot thing at the Masters and they come in for a press conference like early that Thursday morning. And of course, they're they're asked state of the game questions because their their opinion um, matters. If you go back to the 13th hole, you know, they're talking about, well, we're evaluating whether to hit four iron into that green. We would like these guys to have that same evaluation. Um, it's, you know, eagling it with eight iron in your hand is is not the same. So so you're right. Like the the historical figures are hyper aware that the challenge is not the same that they faced both on a day-to-day basis and a shot-by-shot basis. Restoring that would be, um, would be good for everybody. I think. Last question. Um, and we'll get you out of here. Thank you so much for the time. But, um, do you think a pitch clock or a, a shot clock is, is feasible for golf? I think you have to, you, instead of phrasing it that way, I think it should be phrased, why is it not feasible? Like, why can we not be aggressive in address identifying and addressing a problem that is affecting the game from the top level to the entry level? Um, and and that includes players who young players who are really into golf, if you're lucky enough to have hooked somebody on the sport and they're watching a round of golf and they see player A, B, and C on TV taking all this time, evaluating all these things and not stepping up there and decisively hitting a shot. What are they going to do? You mimic, you know, if you're a left-handed hitter as a kid, you're mimicking Ken Griffey's stance, right? Like you, 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 you learn from your heroes. If you're learning that taking however much time you want is rewarded or not penalized, then there's the, the train is left. It's, it's, it's impossible to stop. I think, Golf should be asking the question, we know we have this problem. We have to take steps to, to reel it in. Um, for you know, We have to figure out logistically what does a shot clock mean? How do we penalize people? How do we implement it? Rather than saying, well, it's so, it would be so hard. I think you got to get more aggressive about it. Yeah. yeah. If, you, if you're worried about uh, solving a problem and the solution being too hard, is you, you're thinking about it completely the wrong way. Correct. And I think like, you know, important anecdote to what you said, you know, the distance debate, a lot of what's fueled some of the something needs to change is looking at college golf and seeing, wow, these kids are longer than the PGA Tour. Like this is a problem that is going to continue. You hear Mike Wan talk about this. Right. You know, it is just going to keep becoming a bigger problem because the kids are longer and longer. The same thing for pace of play. If you go to a college event, it is so slow. If you go to a junior event, so slow. And and it is just become going to continue to become a bigger problem.
problem with the sport because it is a self-perpetuating problem. And you're you're in there somewhere in there you're stifling creativity and individuality um, because you're creating these robotic, you know, go back to baseball. If you're fetishizing velocity in baseball, it's the same thing as fetishizing length in, in golf. Um, it takes some, you know, finesse pitchers are not, they don't get a, Jamie Moyer doesn't get a shot anymore. Um, Greg Maddox, you know, who I'm sure you loved, uh, I mean, does he not get a shot? He's, he's not valued the same way. He doesn't get the chance to. What about Mark Burley? Yeah, exactly. Best, best best player to watch. When you saw Mark Burley on the mound, you're just like, ah, this is awesome. It's going to be like a two hour game. Hour and 55 minutes and he's going to allow three hits and this is going to be awesome. There's, there's fun in that and there's creativity and individuality and it's not just, you know, some six five broad shouldered kid from the prairie who's throwing ninety nine with a ninety two mile an hour slider that dives at the bottom of the zone. It's the same thing as okay, everybody hits at three forty. Now, you know, it it there's not as much individuality and creativity, and the characters are are less distinct when everybody does the same thing, and the skills are 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 level across the board. All right, Barry, thank you so much for coming on. That was great. I, uh, you know, I, I thought this might be a fun conversation and, uh, and it exceeded what I was hoping. Um, you, uh, people can find you, you, you're, uh, you write at the Washington post. Uh, it, it, it's a publication. A few people may have heard of, um, you also have written a few books about baseball, the grind inside baseball's endless sum, uh, season and, uh, national pastime sports politics and the return of baseball to Washington, DC. So people can find you on Twitter um, and find your writing uh, at, at very, very uh, many outlets. I appreciate you plugging that. And uh, thanks for handing, having me, Andy. It was a, a fun conversation. Yeah, I'll see you, see you at the U.S. Open. Yeah, sounds good. All right. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode was edited by Matt Ruches. Thank you, Matt. Uh, we are going to be on the road. We got a, a ton of stuff going on this weekend. But um, as a quick reminder, we're, we're humming in, in Club TFE. We've had a lot of great content recently, um, great photography, and uh, I think some words that match up with it. Our most recent course profiles have been kind of... Uh, I think standout ones, we've done a Hoopy Match Club, Chicago Golf Club, uh, Belvedere was the most recent one. We've got some new ones coming in uh, uh, every week. Uh, we now have, I think, 20 in total, almost 20, maybe 18 or eighteen or 19 uh, in total. So go check it out. Obviously, you get access to the whole back catalog if you haven't joined. It is uh, thefriedegg.com slash membership. You can find out more details on Club TFE. It's $120 a year, and it really helps us continue to produce great content. This is the best way you can support Friday. Thank you, and uh, we'll be back next week with a couple episodes.